Good morning. Thank you, Hope. Great job. Take your Bibles. Turn with me this morning to Acts chapter number 14. Acts chapter number 14. As you're turning there, let me uh, just say that we, the leadership of the church had made a decision that we will not be having uh, service this evening because of the possibility of really severe weather. Uh, once again, let me try to reiterate, we've been talking about the fact that we're going to be making some changes in the Sunday evening services. That does not mean, that does not mean that we're doing away with the Sunday evening services. We are not doing away with Sunday evening services. We will be continuing to have Sunday evening services. We are just going to be doing them a little bit differently. We do have a service, we had a service planned and we're ready to go for this evening, but... <clears throat> I saw one of the maps that talked about the tornadic activity, and there's a, there's a blot over the state of Arkansas pretty much that says uh, this is an area where we have um, grave consideration that uh, tornadic activity might happen. And then in the middle of that spot that's over Arkansas is a smaller spot. looks like it's right over the top of Valonia, and it says greatest danger. Seeing this is the third anniversary of the uh, tornado that we had <clears throat> two years ago, uh, it makes us a little uneasy. So that's the reason that we're not having the service this evening. Uh, we are continuing to have <clears throat> Sunday evening services, and we will have one next week. Acts chapter 14, <clears throat> any family trip or vacation is filled with stories, especially, it seems, if it's our family. If you've been at First Baptist Church very long, you know the term Hamby trip is synonymous with disaster. I'll just give you one such example, and those of you that are going with us on the mission trip to Guatemala, feel free not to listen. <laughs> it was our trip to Savannah uh, several years ago, and even for us, it was a record-breaking trip. We learned that the night before our flight was scheduled that there was snow in the forecast. So as a precaution not to miss our flight, we stayed overnight in a motel in Little Rock. It did snow that night, but we made it to our flight just fine. We got on the plane. We pushed back from the gate. The ice storm hit. We de-iced the plane. The ice storm hit, we de-iced the plane, another ice storm hit, we de-iced the plane, we sat for five and a half hours on the tar tarmac at the airport. It goes without saying that we missed our connecting flight in Atlanta. We finally arrived in Savannah to discover that the airline had lost two of the three pieces of our luggage. Unfortunately, those two pieces belonged to my wife. She was not very happy. We arrived at our hotel just in time for me to come down ill. And I spent the next three days on the couch. I finally recovered enough to make a few meetings and to travel home. We didn't experience any difficulties in our travel on the way home, but when we arrived, the airline had managed to lose all three pieces of our luggage. But fortunately, we were at home. 
We boarded a shuttle and we went to retrieve our car only to discover that someone had backed into and smashed our car while we were gone. At that point, all we could do was laugh or cry. I'm sure you have your own stories of bizarre things that have happened to you and your journey through life. So how do you know it's going to be a bad day? Let me read you a few of these. You know it's going to be a bad day when you call the suicide prevention number and they put you on hold. You know it's going to be a bad day when you arrive at your office and there's a 60-minute news team waiting for you. You know it's going to be a bad day when your birthday cake collapses from the weight of the candles. You know it's going to be a bad day when your twin sister forgets your birthday. It's one of my favorites. You know it's going to be a bad day when you wake up and discover that your waterbed had sprung a leak, and then you remember you don't have a waterbed. Now, this is a pretty good one. You know it's going to be a bad day when your horn accidentally goes off and remains stuck as you follow a group of hell's angels on the freeway. <laughs> well, Paul, Paul had his share of uh, bad days. In today's text, we're going to see what happened to Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. On Cyprus, they had uh, preached the gospel, but they had received no response except indifference. In Papos, they had finally had a convert, but only after a fierce battle with a sorcerer. They'd set sail for Asia Minor, but this proved to be too much for John Mark, who gave up and went home. And in Pisidian Antioch, they again preached with great effect, but also it brought great persecution, so that they finally shook the dust off of their feet and they headed for Iconium. Through all the ups and downs, the successes and reversals, they have maintained an unswerving devotion and singleness of purpose in following Christ. Now in chapter 14, we find Paul and Barnabas completing what they had begun, the first missionary journey. They travel through three cities, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, before returning to their sending church in Antioch of Syria. The conditions and the receptions were different in each city to which they came. And from them, we're going to draw strategies this morning for carrying out our own attempts to share the gospel. First of all, <clears throat> we need to be bold. It says in verse number one, now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and Greeks, believed. I want us to look at the proclamation that they issued and first of all to look at the people to whom they preached and setting out on their witnesses, they set out to reach the major cities of the area. The two missionaries followed a pattern that Paul would continue to follow, establishing his work in the major population centers. 
At Iconium, the missionaries met with immediate success and immediate opposition. When they came to the synagogue, they found an immediate response. And when the gospel is genuinely preached, we can expect to see changed lives. But surely, as the preaching of the gospel will generate results, it will also arouse opposition. Look at the manner of their preaching in verse number 3. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who were bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. When their enemies stirred up hatred among them, what Paul and Barnabas did is interesting. We might have expected this verse to read, therefore they spoke cautiously. But instead we read that the danger prompted boldness rather than timidity. Undeterred by this resistance, even because of it, these men, we are told, stayed around for a long time. And they continued to speak out boldly. Notice the essence of their preaching. Luke uses an interesting term to describe the gospel here in verse 3. He says, the word of his grace. The good news of the gospel is that it is free of the idea of worth or of merit on our part, on the part of the recipient. The truth of the gospel message was confirmed, we are told, by signs and wonders. These are miracles that proved that these apostles were God's true messengers. It was how God showed that the message was legitimate before there was a New Testament to which they could point and say, see, we're preaching the truth. Now notice the reaction to this gospel presentation. Verse 2 says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Now Dr. Luke says that certain of the Jews were unbelieving. That's an interesting word. It literally means unpersuadable. They not only did not believe the gospel, but they would not give it a chance or even consider its claims. In fact, this same word is translated disobedient in Romans chapter 10 and in 1 Peter chapter 2. Here they're not met with outright opposition as they faced in Antioch. Here it was a subtle, whispering, deceitful, poisonous propaganda that has spread against them and it has its effect. Now look at verse number four. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Iconia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. As the apostles continued their ministry, the people became more and more polarized into those who supported them and those who who opposed them. This is a fact that we have to understand, and that is that Jesus always brings division. 
And as a result, if you're a Christian, either your friends will get saved or they'll quit having anything to do with you. They'll bail on you. Jesus said that the message he preached would divide men. One of the marks of the preaching of the gospel is that those who are affected by it are divided. They are either for it or they're against it. It really is not possible to be neutral when the true gospel is preached. When the word of God comes into a dark area, whether that is a human heart or a darkened community, it does what light always does. It causes things to grow in the case of the gospel. It produces a warming of the heart. It also dispels darkness. And it causes those, according to John chapter 3, who prefer the darkness, it causes them to scatter. As a result of the opposition, some wanted to stone the missionaries. Paul and Barnabas were brave but they weren't foolish. They were born again, but they weren't born yesterday. The Lord wants to protect his children, but he wants us to use common sense. And so the missionaries, when they learned of this plot, they departed. They had now been thrown out of two cities back to back, Pisidian Antioch and Iconium. And they must have endured some discouragement but they kept on proclaiming the gospel. Secondly, not only do we need to be bold, but we need to be humble. There's a miracle of healing that occurs, beginning in verse number 8. It says, In Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had Faith to be healed said with a loud voice, Stand up, straight on your feet, and he leaped and walked. Paul was preaching probably for several days in a row, and sitting in the marketplace was a man who had never walked. Now, to illustrate how hopeless and helpless this man was, we're told in three different ways of his condition. It says he was without strength in his feet, he was crippled from birth, and that he had never walked. Now this man was evidently well known throughout the city, having lived there all of his life, and he was evidently sitting close enough to hear the Apostle Paul teach. The verb that is used here, was hearing, is a word that means he kept on listening intently. Because he was listening so intently, he came to believe what he heard about the power of Jesus. And as Paul looked at him, it must have been obvious on his face that he was not only listening to Paul as he taught, but that there was faith in this man. Paul says to him, stand up straight on your feet in the lame man, though he had never walked in his life made the effort to obey. And I want you to know that he had faith enough to try. 
And the moment he began to obey, the power to obey was given. This caused an attempt to worship the apostles, verse number 11. Now, when the people saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they raised their voices and said in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all the things that are in them. Let's skip down to verse number 18. And with these things, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Now, when the crowd saw the lame man jump to his feet and start to walk, they started shouting excitedly in their own language, the gods have come down, have become men and have come down to us. Imagine you just walked into a strange city and you're being welcomed as a god. That's pretty heady stuff. This reception is kind of hard for us to understand if we don't take the time to understand a little bit of background here. According to Roman literature of the time, there was an ancient myth that Zeus, who is the main god, and Hermes, who is his messenger, had once appeared in this region disguised as mortals. The community, except for one elderly couple, had rejected them. The two gods had sent judgment on the whole region except for the the couple who had received them who were rewarded. So when the people saw this miracle, they saw this lame man who had been healed, They thought that Barnabas was Zeus and that Paul was Hermes and they were not going to take any chances this time. They were going to extend to Paul and Barnabas the welcome that was befitting God. When it finally dawns on Paul and Barnabas what they are doing, now remember they're speaking in their own language, which Paul and Barnabas do not speak. When they finally see the priest coming with with the oxen and it dawns on them that they're about to make sacrifice to them as gods, they are horrified. They tear their clothes as as a sign of blasphemy and they protest against this before the crowd. And once they've gotten the crowd's attention, they did everything in their power to explain to them that they were just men. (laughs) We go from an attempt to worship them to an attempt to kill them. It says in verse 19, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. That's how fickle the crowd is. 
If the people could not fit Paul and Barnabas into their neat little idolatrous preconceptions, then they're ready to do away with them. Never forget that the same person who is your most vocal supporter today can be booing you tomorrow. The same person who says you're great on Monday may be trying to get you fired on Tuesday. That's just the way people are. Notice how quickly the the crowd changed. The ministry here concluded with the same crowd who had tried to worship Paul and Barnabas, turning against them and attempting to stone them to death. In an act of mob violence, they grabbed Paul and they drag him outside of the city and they stone him and leave him for dead. It says in verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. As soon as the crowd has left, the grieving disciples gathered around Paul as he lies on the ground And as they did so, it says, Paul rose up. Now, there's no need to conclude here that Paul has been dead and it was now brought back to life. They simply had not managed to kill Paul. In fact, Luke, who was a physician, indicated in verse 19, they supposed him to be dead. How easy it would have been for Paul and his companions to simply leave at this point and continue their journey. But they got, he got up and they went back into the same city that had just taken him out to stone him. Paul, caked with blood and dirt, must have been quite a spectacle as he re-entered the city. Probably more effective than a thousand sermons. Nothing could deter Paul and Barnabas from carrying out the ministry that Christ had given them. Perhaps it's not without significance that Lystra, this city, will be the city from which Paul will recruit Lois and Eunice, who are the mother and grandmother of Timothy. There's a third thing, and that is we must be persistent. They now make the decision to revisit all the cities that have thrown them out. They have two things in mind. First of all, to disciple the believers. Verse 21 says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, We must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the Christian life, it's more than just being saved. It's growing in our relationship with Christ. It's going on to be what God intends us to be in Christ. The discipling process, as it's outlined here in verse 22, have three distinctives. First, it says they taught They strengthened or they confirmed the souls of the disciples. It means to make solid, to glue down. 
So Paul and Barnabas made them solid. He confirmed them. He fixed them solid in his word. Secondly, they exhorted. They exhorted them to continue in the faith. This deals specifically with encouraging people to practice biblical instruction. For many, the problem is not a lack of knowledge about what the Bible says, but it is a lack of putting into practice what we do know. Martin Luther once said to his young disciples, you cannot read too much in scripture and what you read, you cannot read too carefully. And what you read carefully, you cannot understand too well. And what you understand well, you cannot teach too well. And what you teach well, you cannot live too well. It's putting it into practice. And third, they warned them about the nature of suffering and the cost of discipleship. He says we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. This is a no-nonsense approach to the nature of the Christian life. The word tribulation here is the word thalipsis. It is a picture of an ancient threshing instrument which separated the chaff from the wheat. Paul teaches this in his letters in Philippians chapter 1 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and Jesus includes it in his basic call to discipleship in Luke chapter 9. After leaving Derby, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Lystra was where, God, where Paul had been stoned and left for dead. Antioch and Iconium were the cities that, had, <clears throat> that he had to flee from. The second thing they did was they organized the churches. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The infant churches had, had to have an infrastructure. They needed structure and they needed leadership. And therefore, in each of the churches, church elders were appointed to shepherd the church. But that's an interesting word, the word appointed. It is a word that literally means to approve by a showing of hands in a congregational vote. That's what this word appointing means. And there's a fourth thing that we'll mention just briefly. We need to be accountable. Acts chapter 14, verse 24 and after they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And now when they had preached the word in Pergia, they went to Italia, from which they sailed to Antioch, which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them. And they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Since Paul and Barnabas considered Antioch as their home church, their sending church, we would think of it today, they wanted to report back to the believers that had sent them out about all that God had done. It says that they gathered the church together. It would seem that 
that missions was a priority for the whole church. They had, he says, by the grace of God, completed the work which God had given them to do. Well, that's a great thing to be able to say. The victory is not to those who start, but those who finish. The amazing thing about their accomplishments is that they did it without any of the modern means of transportation or communication that we possess today. As Dr. Bob Pierce of Youth for Christ used to say, others have done so much with so little, while we in our world have done so little with so much. Think for just a moment of the waste of the wealth of American believers which could be invested in world evangelism which might lead to the salvation of millions. The U.S. News and World Report says that the average American spent, well, together we spend $60 billion annually on our pets. Now, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm not saying I want you to not take care of your pets. But we need to realize we have money. The question is what we decide to use it for. And surely world evangelism is world of consideration. The missionaries have the joy of reporting the blessings of the work back to their church family. This is perhaps the first missionary conference in church history. And what a conference it must have been. Let me close this morning by reading you something that Winston Churchill once said. I think that is worthy of us hearing this morning. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man has stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Let's pray. Father, help us to be consistent in our Christian lives. Help us to be able to stay the course, to realize that even in Christians, we're going to have bad days. There are going to be times of difficulty and times of tribulation in our lives. That does not mean that we're out of your will. It may mean that we're right in the center of your will. Father, give us the ability to be bold, to be persistent, to stay the course. 
Father, if there's one here this morning that has never put their life completely in your hands, I pray that today might be that day. I pray that they might understand that they are a sinner just like the rest of us and that none of us can save ourselves but that Jesus has already paid the penalty for our sins on the cross of Calvary. And all we need to do is to claim what he has already done, to receive the gift that he is offering to us, the gift of eternal life. And Father, if there's one here that needs to make that decision, I pray that you guide them, even this morning, to pray, recognizing that they're sinners and asking that you would forgive them. For those who know they're saved, I pray that you'd help us to stay the course. When we're tempted to give up, when we're discouraged, when we're depressed, help us always to turn to you and find our strength in you. Renew us today. Give us a renewed determination to carry the gospel message beginning here in this community and then reaching around the world to spread your influence and your message. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.